this podcast deals with true crime. I will be speaking frankly and openly about crimes such as murder, rape, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Northern California. When you think of this place, what comes to mind? Well, for most people, they probably think of San Francisco. But that metropolis is just a small portion of the northern part of the state, a region that is mostly dominated by redwood forests, national parks, and the Rockies and Sierra Nevada mountain range. It's an area sparsely populated with small mountain towns. It was here in one such town in the spring of 1981 that a horrible crime was committed, a crime that still strikes fear in the hearts of local residents, and nearly 40 years later still remains unsolved. Tonight on the True Crime Truckers podcast, I bring you the case of the Ketty Cabin Murders. Susan Sharp, born March 29, 1945, in Springfield, Massachusetts, along with her five children, left her home in Connecticut after separating from her husband, James Sharp. She decided to relocate to Northern California, where her brother Don was residing at the time. Upon arriving in California, she began renting Cabin 28 at the Ketty Resort in rural Sierra Nevada community of Ketty. There, she resided with her 15-year-old son, John, 14-year-old daughter, Sheila, 12-year-old daughter, Tina, and two young sons, Rick, age 10, and Greg, age 5. On April 11, 1981, around 1.30 p.m., Sue and Sheila drove from Ketty to pick up John and his friend Dana Hall Wingate from Gasner Park, Quincy, California, and brought them back to Ketty, about five miles away. Two hours later, around 3.30 p.m., John and Dana hitchhiked back to Quincy, where they may have had plans to visit friends. Around this time, the two teens were seen at the city's downtown area. A local woman, Donna Williams, claimed to have picked them up in front of a tire store and given them a ride down the road to another friend's home. The two were later seen attending a party at Oakland Camp in Quincy. 
That same evening, Sheila had plans to spend the night with the Seabolt family, who lived in an adjacent cabin, while Sue remained at home with Rick and Greg and the boy's young friend, Justin Smart. Sheila departed the home shortly after 8 p.m., leaving her mother alone with the younger children. Tina, who had been watching television at the Seabolts, returned home to the cabin around 9.30 p.m. after Sheila arrived to spend the night. Around 7 a.m. in the morning of April 12th, Sheila returned home and discovered the dead bodies of Sue, John, and Dana in the cabin's living room. All three had been bound with adhesive tape and wire. Tina was absent from the home, while the three younger children, Rick, Greg, and Justin, were unharmed in an adjacent bedroom. Initial reports stated that the three young boys had slept through the incident, though this was later contradicted. Upon discovering the scene, Sheila rushed back to the Seabolt's cabin, whereupon James Seabolt retrieved Rick, Greg, and Justin through the bedroom window. He later admitted to having briefly entered the cabin through the back door to see if anyone was still alive, potentially contaminating evidence in the process. The murders of Sue, John, and Dana were notably vicious. Two bloodied knives and one hammer were found at the scene, and one of the knives, a steak knife later determined to have been used in the murders, had been bent in half due to extreme force. Blood spatter evidence from inside the house indicated that the murders of Sue, John, and Dana had all taken place in the living room. Sue was discovered lying on her side near the living room sofa and was nude from the waist down. She had been gagged with a blue bandana and her own panties, which had been secured onto her face with tape. In addition to suffering stab wounds to her chest, her throat had also been slashed and an imprint matching the butt of a Daisy 880 BB gun was found on the side of her head. John had also had his throat slashed, while Dana had suffered multiple head injuries and had been manually strangled. All three victims had blood force trauma to their heads, later determined to have been caused by a hammer or hammers. Autopsies undertaken several days later in Sacramento County determined that each had died as a result from multiple knife wounds and blunt force trauma. Upon interviewing Sheila and the Seabolt family, with whom Sheila had spent the night in the neighboring cabin, law enforcement found that none had heard any commotion during the hours that the crime had taken place. However, another couple who resided nearby reported waking around 1.30 a.m. to what sounded like muffled screaming but were unable to decipher from where it was coming and soon fell back to sleep. When inventorying the sharp cabin for missing items, Sheila was able to determine that Tina's jacket, shoes, and a shoebox containing various tools were absent. The sharp cabin showed no indication of forced entry, though detectives did recover an unidentified fingerprint from a handrail on the stairs leading to the cabin's back door. The cabin's telephone had been left off the hook, and all of the lights had been shut off, as well as the drapes closed. Law enforcement interviewed several potential suspects, including one man who disappeared from Ketty shortly after the murders and was later found in Oregon. After submitting to a polygraph examination, the suspect was cleared. One of the Sharps' neighbors, Marilyn Smart, the mother of Justin, later claimed that she had found a bloody jacket belonging to Tina in her basement and had turned it in to the police, though no official record of this exists. 
Her husband, Martin Smart, also claimed that a claw hammer had inexplicably gone missing from his home. Plumas County Sheriff Doug Thomas, who presided over the case, later stated that Martin had provided, quote, endless clues in the case that seemed to throw the suspicion away from him, unquote. In addition to interviewing the Smarts, detectives interviewed numerous other locals and neighbors. Several, including members of the Seabolt family, recalled seeing an unknown green van parked at the Sharps' cabin around 9 p.m. Others recalled noticing a brown Datsun parked at the residence that evening, which appeared to have a tire that was going flat. In interviews, Justin told detectives conflicting stories of the evening, including that he had dreamt the details of the murder though he later claimed to have actually witnessed them. In his later accounts of the events, told under hypnosis by Dr. Jerry Dash, a psychologist at the Children's Hospital Los Angeles, Justin claimed to have heard unusual sounds coming from the living room while watching television in the bedroom with Rick and Greg. Upon investigating the sounds, he witnessed Sue with two men, one with a mustache and long hair, the other clean-shaven with short hair, and both wore glasses. According to Justin, John and Dana then entered the home and began heatedly arguing with the men, resulting in a fight that spiraled into violence. Tina purportedly entered the room during the altercation and was taken out of the cabin's back door by one of the men. Based on Justin's description, composite sketches of the two unknown men were produced by forensic artist Harlan Embry. In press releases accompanying the sketches, the suspects were described as being in their late 20s to early 30s. One stood between 5 feet 11 inches and 6 feet 2 inches with dark blonde hair and the other between 5 feet 6 inches and 5 feet 10 inches with black greased hair. Both wore gold framed sunglasses. regarding the crimes being ritualistic or motivated by drug trafficking were dismissed by the Plumas County Sheriff's Doug Thomas, who stated in the weeks following the murders that no drug paraphernalia or illegal drugs were found at the home. Carla McMullen, a family acquaintance, later told detectives that Dana Wingate had recently stolen an unknown quantity of LSD from a local drug dealer, though she was unable to provide proof of this claim. About 4,000 man-hours were spent working on the case, which Thomas described as, quote, frustrating. In December of 1983, detectives ruled out serial killers Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole as potential suspects. Because Tina was believed to have been abducted from the crime scene, her disappearance was initially investigated by the FBI, though it was reported on April 29, 1981, that the FBI had backed off the search as the Department of Justice was doing an adequate job and made the FBI's presence unnecessary. A grid pattern search of the area covering a five-mile radius around the cabin was conducted with police canines, 
but the efforts were fruitless. On April 22, 1984, three years and 11 days after the murders and Tina's disappearance, a bottle collector discovered a cranium portion of a human skull and part of a mandible at Camp 18 near Feather Falls in neighboring Butte County, a distance of roughly 100 miles from Ketty. Shortly after announcing the discovery, Butte County Sheriff's Office received an anonymous call that identified the remains as belonging to Tina, but the call was not documented in the case. A recording of this call was found at the bottom of an evidence box at some point after 2013 by a deputy who was assigned the case. The remains were confirmed by a forensic pathologist to be those of Tina Sharp in June 1984. Near the remains, detectives also found a child's blanket, a blue nylon jacket, a pair of Levi Strauss jeans with a missing back pocket, and an empty surgical tape dispenser. In 1996, Robert Joseph Silva Jr. was examined as a potential suspect in the murder. The cabin in which the murders occurred was demolished in 2004. In a 2008 documentary on the murders, Marilyn Smart claimed that she suspected her husband Martin and his friend John Bo Budbetti, sometimes reported as John Booty, were responsible for the murders of Sue, John, Dana, and Tina. Marilyn claimed that on the evening of the crimes, she had left Martin and Budbetti at a local bar around 11 p.m. and returned home to go to sleep. Around 2 a.m. on April 12th, she stated she awoke to find the two burning an unknown item in the wood stove. Additionally, she alleged that Martin, quote, hated Johnny Sharp with a passion, unquote. However, in the 2008 documentary, Sheriff Doug Thomas told the filmmakers he had personally interviewed Martin and confirmed he had successfully passed a polygraph examination. Although there are some debate in the scientific community at the time regarding the efficiency of polygraphs. Assessments of polygraphs by scientific and government bodies generally suggest that polygraphs are inaccurate and may be defeated by countermeasures and are an imperfect or invalid means of assessing truthfulness. Martin Smart died of cancer in Portland, Oregon in June 2000. On March 24, 2016, a hammer matching the description of the hammer Martin claimed to have lost was discovered in a local pond and taken into evidence by Plumas County Special Investigator Mark Gainberg. Plumas County Sheriff Hagwood, who was 16 years old at the time of the murder, knew the Sharp family personally, stated, quote, The location it was found, it would have been intentionally put there. It would not have been accidentally misplaced, unquote. Gainberg also stated that at the time, six potential suspects were being examined. In a 2016 article published by the Sacramento Bee detailing the discovery of the hammer, shortly after the murders, Martin had left Ketty and had driven to Reno, Nevada. From there, he had sent a letter to Marilyn, ruminating on the personal struggles in their marriage, which he concluded with, quote, I paid the price for your love, and now I've bought it with four people's lives, unquote. In a 2016 interview, Gainberg stated that the letter was, quote, overlooked in the initial investigation and was never admitted into evidence. He later criticized the quality of the initial investigation, saying, quote, you could take someone just coming out of the academy and they'd have done a better job, unquote. 
A counselor whom Martin regularly visited would also allege that he had admitted to the murders of Sue and Tina, but claimed, quote, I didn't have anything to do with the boys, unquote. He allegedly told the counselor that Tina was killed to prevent her from identifying him as she had, quote, witnessed the whole thing, unquote. In April of 2018, Gainberg stated that DNA evidence recovered from one piece of tape in the crime scene matched that of a known living suspect. The Ketty murders have received national media attention, including coverage in People magazine, an investigation discovery documentary series, and an independent 2008 feature documentary titled Cabin 28. Renewed public interest in the case was sparked in part by the release of the 2008 horror film The Strangers, which various internet bloggers theorized was inspired by the Ketty murders. Despite slight similarities, the film made no such claims to having been based on the crimes. In this case, I think that it can be safely assumed that Martin Smart and John Bubetti were responsible for the Ketty Cabin murders. The fact that Martin left the scene immediately after the crime, fleeing to Reno for about a day or two, and the fact that he kept inserting himself into the investigation, giving information that threw suspicion off of him, mixed with the information that he wrote a letter to his wife when they were separated, saying he paid for her love with, quote, four lives, is highly suspicious. It had been long rumored that Sue had been meddling in the Smart's marriage, advising Marilyn that she should leave Martin. This may be more than enough motive to commit a murder. The target may have been Sue, and the other kids were murdered because they were witnesses to the crime, and the only reason that Justin wasn't murdered is because he was Martin's son. Even Justin's description of the killers that he had witnessed implicates both Martin and John. If you take the top half of both police sketches and put it on the bottom half of the other police sketch, they look almost identical to Bubetti and Smart. It has been widely claimed that John Bubetti died in Chicago in 1988. This, however, is a false claim. In doing my research, I found that John Bubetti is very much alive and living in Florida. So the fact that the Sheriff's Department in Plumas County says that they have DNA matching to a living suspect may mean that it matches Bubetti. So as far as the case of the Ketty Cabin murders, I believe that we will have a resolution to this case in the very near future. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Truckers Podcast. You can also visit my website, at www.ageofradio.org backslash truecrimetrucker backslash. Also, if you would like to donate to the show and get yourself a True Crime Truckers podcast sticker, go to www.patreon.com backslash podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at michael.pritt81. 
I will return in two weeks with another case to present. So until then, stay safe.